Welcome to the Marketing Stir podcast by Starista, probably the most entertaining marketing podcast you're gonna put in your ears. I'm Jared Walls, Associate Producer and Starista's Creative Copy Manager. The goal of this podcast is to chat with industry leaders to get their take on the current challenges of the market, but also have a little fun along the way. In this episode, Vincent and AJ chat with Vijay Ramachandran, Vice President of Marketing Strategy and Planning at Pitney Bowes. He discusses the challenges of developing marketing strategies for a company that's been around for a century. He also offers insight into an industry that operates in both physical and digital worlds, as well as how to prospect without coming off like a carnival barker. AJ raises funds for a good cause, and Vincent is excited about Vegas. Give it a listen. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Starista's The Marketing Stir. I, of course, am your always energetic, always happy. That's actually true. If I'm in a bad mood, something crazy must have happened. Host Vincent Petrofessa, the Vice President of B2B Products and Partnerships here at Starista. Real quick, let's you know, tell, us you, tell you about Starista, right? Pay the bills, as they say in the radio business. This is not a radio show, but anyway... Starista, we are an identity marketing company. We have our own B2B data, our own B2C data. We help companies utilize that data to target new customers, email marketing. We have our own DSP, Adster, that helps you with display, connected TV. Call me or email me, vincent at starista.com. I just gave you my email address. That is how confident I am in our services. The other thing in this world I'm confident in is my CEO, my fearless leader, ladies and gentlemen. He's in the office today. I see the beautiful orange in the background. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my co-host, AJ Gupta. What's going on, AJ? Hey, Vincent. Pretty exciting. Last week, we had our first in-person event in over a year. Uh, We raised money for Leukemia and Lymphoma Society hosted it at a local bar that graciously volunteered uh, the space to us for an evening. That is awesome. Yes. I mean, uh, we love the work that you do with Leukemia Lymphoma Society. Um, you and, and Starista yeah, put on that event, raised money for it. Oftentimes in our summit, we're always featuring, featuring that nonprofit organization. So great. You know, it's, it's good to get out there for a good cause, drink a few beers, hang with some coworkers. Glad to hear it. Yeah, no, it was uh, pretty good. And a shout out to Megan from our team for putting it all together as well. And hopefully the events are back. I know you're coming to San Antonio in a couple of weeks. So look forward to hosting you and all of our other execs that are uh, that don't live in San Antonio. Yeah, looking forward to that. I'm also looking for big announcement, ladies and gentlemen, we are actually by the time this podcast comes out, we have already launched our new B2B division access B2B, you'll see some press releases going out about that. We always offered amazing B2B services along with our consumer services. We had them all on one site, though. Let's break it off. B2B marketers think differently and they want to go to a website and they want to go to a division where they have all the services right there. So I'm really excited about that. You and I had a lot of involvement in that piece of it. So excited. But AJ, enough about me, you, Starista, right? It's all about our guests here on the podcast. We got a great one. 
you know, he's a fellow 90s kid like me. We were already talking about that. He is part of a company that means a lot to me. And I'll tell you why. The company's Pitney Bowes. You've heard of Pitney Bowes. You know them for a variety of reasons. Some people may know him for one main reason, but, you know, uh, our guest VJ is going to talk about a different reason today. My uncle, Joe, of course, you know, Vinnie Vincent, of course, I have an uncle, Joe. Joe Petrofessa worked at Pitney Bowes over 30 years. You don't get that anymore, right? 30 years. So this company means a lot to me. Uh, this person, will mean a lot to me and our listeners. Ladies and gentlemen, please, the VP, Marketing, Strategy, and Planning at Pitney Bowes, please welcome Vijay Ramachandran. What's going on, Vijay? What's up, Vincent? How are you? Good to be uh, on the show. Thanks for having me. Oh, I love having you. I'm great. I'm in one of those moods, like I said before, but my allergies are acting up a little bit, but hey, that, that never stops me from the Adds marketing a rasp to your voice, you know? You Look, got I, yeah, like a smoker's voice. I've never smoked a cigarette in my entire <laughs> life, but I have that. Thank you. You know, that just adds to the mystique of uh the podcast but yeah it's great to see you again great to hear from you pj it, i, I want to get right into it with you um my fellow 90s uh kid there great music that's a whole podcast we can do about that aj is not a 90s kid you're a little younger than us aj um but you appreciate good music but and it seems like you do as well, VJ, with the guitars in the background uh, there, I see. Tell me about that first before I get into my two questions I want to hit you with right off the bat. To remind me of a time before I had kids back here. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's, it's, it's on the wall, so they can't get at it. Yeah, right. First of all, I know. They're getting up there. They're getting up there. It, it disappears. One of these guitars disappears every once in a while, for sure. Yeah, I know. They just play it, and one of the strings is broken. I know. It's... <laughs> Oh, man, you know, uh, before kids, the good old days, but now it's fun now. It's fun now. But uh, VJ, let's get into it because Pitney Bowes, right? Huge company, been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. Tell people first about Pitney Bowes and what in particular you're doing there, uh, your division and your role within the company. Yeah, sure. So Pitney Bowes, now Vince, if you ask like seven or ask 10, 10 people, right? Who do you know about Pitney Bowes? Seven out of 10 are going to tell you they're the mail meter company, right? They're the guys that do like the, you know, over in Europe, they call it the franking machine. You know, they, they put the postage on, on a mail. On mail. Uh, the other three will go Pitney who, right? Mm -hmm. that's, that's our challenge today. Uh, we're a hundred year old company. Uh, we actually, most of our business today comes from the e-commerce space and it's not uh, necessarily in uh, mail meters, it's in e-commerce logistics, doing logistic services. So what is that? That's a that is fulfillment. Like when you once you click, someone clicks buy on a on an e-commerce website, that is the pick, pack, and ship operation. We do the delivery. We're the fourth largest private uh, parcel carrier for e-commerce in the U.S. Uh, a lot of folks don't know that. Um, and and then we do returns. Returns, which is incredibly complex and and tricky and costly. Uh, we we help conquer a lot of those problems. For, for retailers and e-commerce companies. Um, so that's the majority of our revenue as a company today comes from e-commerce. What do I do? I am um, I lead up our marketing, positioning, messaging, um, go-to-market strategy in the e-commerce division. So I look at, my team looks at the market. We understand what the trends are. We provide that trend analysis as a service to our clients. We uh, help position 
where our solutions sit in the market. How do we set us, set ourselves apart from our competitors? All of the things that a, a product marketer might do when you combine it with market intelligence, competitive intelligence, that sort of thing, as well as what's our customer experience? How do we make sure our customer experience is better, better than everyone else's? And that's, that's a lot of what we own. Yeah. And you know, that's, you're right, because I know even, even me knowing Pitney Bowes, right? I know there's some software that you have as well that it, it revolves around uh, shipping, but you, you, and the mail station, mail machines, right? You know that I've uh, been at several companies that have them. It's, they're awesome. They're convenient. But you're right. I didn't really realize that whole e-commerce piece um, as well. So that is awesome. And VJ, we always like to ask this of people on our podcast because it's the marketing stir and sometimes it's not always a direct correlation but how did you get involved in marketing what did you study what was your path here yeah yeah it was it was a it was a winding path just like practically every other marketer right so i started i started um business uh international business uh out of college did not have a marketing focus but what i did have was a long work history in the creative space. And so out of college, I started up a, a small creative agency, um, pulled in some, some designers, some writers, put an agency together, uh, ran that for several years. And what I found is, is a couple of things, right? When you're running a business, you don't have much time when it's a very small business to market that business, to go sell that business and do the creative work that is required from a creative business, right? It's, it's, it's very tough wearing those multiple hats. And so I went into the consulting world from there. I wanted to learn more about how to run a business well, um, how to grow a business, what are the, the strategic imperatives and, and what are the insights you can draw from observation. And so I did consulting for quite a while. From consulting, I came back into marketing, went into product marketing, combined the strategy and consulting work with the creative background and was able to pull those together and I haven't looked back since. So now today I own um, the, both the, the messaging and positioning strategy as well as a lot of the creative uh, that, that we do. You know, what was it like going from owning your own startup to working at a very, very large company now? Yeah, so I would, I would love to say that it was, you know, the, the man took me hostage, you know, and it was, <laughs> I was locked up in the bureaucracy, but I got to be honest, there was a level, at least at, at that age, I was you know, pretty, pretty young uh, when I started right out of college, started a business. It was kind of a relief. You know, you have so much that you take for granted when you work for a larger company in terms of whether it's legal and finance and HR, sales, all the administrative work that you don't really have to think about. You've got a matrixed organization that is already well uh, mature enough to handle those. They've got the ability, the wherewithal to go have enterprise software that automates a lot of these things. You don't have to, there, there's a lot of, um, you've only got so much attention span as a human being, right? And the more your attention is spread across multiple topics, the more it kind of drags down your ability to, to innovate and think outside the box. The more you're able to focus the more you can, you can actually break out of, of norms. And what I found was that it's very hard when you own a very small business to be able to take a step back and really innovate in specific areas. Um, and so I, I found it as a relief. You know, there, there is a level of creative freedom that you have to uh, think of as a trade-off, 
but the amount of focus you gain as a result of that more than makes up for it, especially when you're just starting out and you, you don't really know how to run a business as a, as a young entrepreneur. Yeah, as we're growing, we're seeing a lot of it ourselves as we bring in executives from other companies. They, they always ask, uh, who, who's the contract guy? Who's the legal guy? And we're staring at them like, hey, it's, it's you. <laughs> <laughs> Look in the mirror, buddy. Yeah. 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 Uh, so Ajay, I know with the pandemic, a lot of businesses have been affected. How has that affected Pitney Bowes? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So um, the pandemic for sure has changed every aspect of our business. I, I think that's not un- abnormal for most companies, right? It's affected all of our lives. It's in many cases accelerated trends that were already happening by two to three or more years. Um, ours, ours is a little bit, our industry and our space is a little bit different. So let me uh, kind of dial back to, as I said, we're in the e-commerce logistics industry, right? People are shopping uh, online now more than ever before because they, at the start of the pandemic felt like shopping in store was a health concern, right? It was a safety risk. And so people shopped online. Uh, there was a 40% increase in online shopping over the, the early, early days of the pandemic. And, and that did not decrease significantly last year. And even now, online shopping is significantly higher. It's probably taken a two to three year jump in terms of e-commerce penetration than, than before. Now, here's, here's the interesting story behind this. 100 years ago, when Pitney Bowes was founded, we're a 101-year-old company founded in 1920. 100 years ago, there was another pandemic. It was the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918 to 1920. Uh, one of the things that people don't remember, because you know who remembers the 1920s, right? Um, one of the things that people don't remember is at the time, one, mail was the backbone of commerce. It wasn't the internet as it was today. It was mail. It was the primary way you sent bills, you got paid, you transacted business. Um, and licking stamps was the only way you could get something in the mail. Licking stamps was considered a major means of transmitting the virus at the time. And so people stopped using mail, which was the only way you could transact beyond just local commerce at the time, right? And so Pitney Bowes comes out, Pitney, the, there's two, two men, Pitney and Bowes, they come out with the postage meter uh, in 1920, partly to address this very issue the health concern of the Spanish flu pandemic and the, to remove the need of looking postage stamps to spreading germs. That was one of the driving factors. And a hundred years later, here we are, we're at e-commerce, which is again, a solution to health concerns in transacting long distance commerce. It's we've come back around a hundred years later. It's so, so fascinating. And so today, what has happened is this influx of people shopping online, right? No, people are shopping online more than ever before, as I said, uh, 40% higher last year, still tr- tr- tremendously higher than normal. Um, in fact, 49% of consumers say they are now shopping online more often than they were before the pandemic. 49% of consumers, which is just flabbergasting. Um, before, you know, before the pandemic was already pretty high. It was, it was uh, uh, if, you, if you exclude like, uh, gas and convenience store type of product purchases, it was about uh, 30% of transactions were happening online before the pandemic. 
And now 49% of consumers say that they shop online more than ever before. Um, so it's, it, it's, a, it's a tremendous time to be in this industry that comes with some challenges. We, as I like to think about it, we in the e-commerce logistics industry sit at this intersection between bits and atoms, right? Bits being infinitely scalable. There's no marginal cost in, in dealing with online transactions, right? You look at um, Netflix, it costs them essentially nothing to add an additional customer because they're an entirely online business. Same with Facebook. It doesn't cost them anything to add a single customer, right? Because there's no significant cost to add a new customer uh, because it's all, it's all digital. In the physical world, the world of atoms, there is a real cost. Every additional box or shipment or truck of boxes that we have to ship, there's gas, there's the labor of putting the trucks on the box, the labor of driving the truck, the work re revolving around quality assurance and tracking and, and all of the inventory management and returns. There's a actual cost that increases with every additional box. So we're sitting here in a world where 50% 50, 50 of the work happens online or the experience happens online where you're shopping online and you can scale infinitely there, right? You can go from zero uh, customers to a million customers and your online store, if you're running on a, a good technology stack, it's not a problem, right? You might have a marginal increase in subscription cost, but it's not, it's not a big deal. You can scale. You can't, as a physical business, scale that fast. You've got to move atoms, which has cost. And so what we came up against and others in our industry as well is we had the demand going up exponentially because it was digital, the world of bits, and the world of atoms not being able to catch up because there were real world costs of scalability challenges with, with atoms. And so we come in and we're faced with more demand for our services than we can, we have capacity for. And same with everybody else. I mean, it's, it's, it's a good time to be in the industry, but it is a very complex time to be in this industry because you can let people down very easily just by being overwhelmed. Not by executing poorly, by simply by being overwhelmed. And, and that is something that all of us in this industry are, are working on is, you know, e-commerce is not slowing down. It may take a small sort of plateau over the summer as people get back out in the stores, but it, as soon as peak season comes again, the holiday, we're going to see e-commerce skyrocket once more, right? Usually during peak sales go up by 40%. And so we're going to see this again. And we, we've got a responsibility in this industry and in logistics to be prepared. The pandemic was something that you couldn't forecast. This peak is, and so that's the challenge we have is being prepared for the next big wave um, because it is still, even now, uh, a tremendous amount of demand. And I love the way you describe that, VJ. and I love the metaphor there. Uh, I also love that, that Spanish flu story that uh, I'm, I'm sure during the time people didn't like this, but you know, that, but uh, the, the way that Pitney Bowes is like, oh, wait, here, we're gonna solve a problem. And it's a business that's here uh, you know, a hundred years. I would have loved to also seen like the prototype of that first machine. That's, uh, that's it interesting. It was a beast. We've got, we've got uh, the, the one, one of the very first machines on display at our headquarters. Wow. It, it, it's about the size of a small car. 
Wow, that's crazy. And now they fit like right on, uh, they could fit. It's yeah, the size are. almost of like a laptop, right? One arm. Yeah, right. That's crazy. No, I love that story. Uh, let's talk about storytelling before. Uh, let, let, let's, let's, we were talking about it before. Uh, and because uh, AJ was making fun of me about my stand-up comedy, I'm always telling stories. I know in, uh, in partnerships and sales, but in marketing, right? We hear from a lot of marketers. It's a lot of it about their job is storytelling. Can you comment on that? What, what, how does storytelling fit into your role and what's the importance of it? Yeah, I would say storytelling is the role. It is the role. There is nothing but the story uh, for, for someone in my role. Um, and I'll tell you a reason why, Vincent. It's, it's a great question. Um, we're in an industry, e-commerce logistics, let's just talk about, you know, some of the, the, the big drivers is delivery speed, right? Amazon has set the bar here, two-day delivery being kind of the norm with Amazon Prime. Um, speed is critically important. But the other, other thing that, that a lot of folks that are consumers don't really think about is free shipping is also the norm, right? So it's fast shipping and free shipping, right? Well, how can it be both? Because fast shipping is expensive. Right, it's really costs a lot of money if you need to get it get a box from California to New York, right? It it costs a lot of money. You've got to do that in a short amount of time and move millions of boxes or billions of boxes. It costs a lot of money to move fast, um, and, and so you know you might have to have more product located in different places. This is the Amazon strategy. You put warehouses all over the country, but you've got to be able to plan all that inventory. You got to figure out how much you need. Now, the, the challenge is that if you're like a, a fashion retailer, you don't have you sell that many types of products. And you, you're, if you're a growing business, you can't buy all, enough inventory to locate it everywhere. So having your inventory, your, your product everywhere in the country is very difficult. So speed becomes extra expensive. You actually are shipping across the country. At the same time, consumers don't want to pay for shipping. You know, free shipping is the norm. In fact, uh, more than 85% of consumers will jump off of a website, will abandon the site if free shipping is not offered. Wow. 86% of consumers. And, and so the, the, the challenge you face is you're being forced as an as a online retailer to spend more and more on shipping, but you have to spend, uh, you can't pass that cost on to your consumer ever. Maybe you can get away with it if you're a, if you're selling a really high value good. Consumers will will be willing to pay a little bit, but most retailers can't get away with at least one free shipping offer on their site. And so here's the challenge as as a as a provider, right? The the clients that we work with care about some of those same two things, right? It's speed and it's cost. They want faster, and at the same time, they want cheaper. What you're what you're grappling with are two opposite ends of the spectrum. You, you can't be both the fastest and the cheapest. That's just, that it's, it's impossible with the laws of physics, right? Um, unless you are huge and you can work out the economies of scale, there's only one or two players that are that size. You got Amazon, you got Walmart, you got Target. There's a few players that are that size. But for everybody else, you can't, you've got to play a, a balance between speed and cost. So when you're a marketer in this industry, and only two things matter, speed and cost, right? It's a very difficult challenge um, at, 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 the, at the outset because there's like, 
aside from physics and economies of scale, what can you do? You, it's either you go faster or you go, go faster or more expensive or slower and, and, and less expensive, unless you can show value, unless you can show value. That's the difference, right? If you can somehow deliver value to a client beyond the commodity of speed versus cost. I mean, if, if you look at it, this is not that uh, dissimilar from other industries where the, basically the, the products are commod commodities, right? Um, you look at soap, for example, right? Where has soap changed in, in the last 20, 25 years? Well, it hasn't once you're killing 99.9% of bacteria, uh, you can't get much more antibacterial than that, right? So the, the efficacy of the soap, not going to change. You have real cost in making soap, so you can't necessarily make it that much cheaper. It's effectiveness of the soap versus the cost of the soap. So where do great marketers go? They go into consumer packaged goods. Why? Because in commodity industries, the storyteller is king. In industries where the, the, the product is evaluated on very commodity uh, uh, attributes, you actually can create value by, by being the marketer, the storyteller. And so that's what brought me to this industry in logistics, because the thing that people don't, uh, I think they take for granted they don't really realize is that commodity industries provide the greatest opportunity for marketers like us. Because you can go tell stories and that is how the company differentiates. You can't come out with features when the audience is thinking about things in commodity terms, speed versus cost. Features don't drive it because features can still ladder up to, is, does that feature help me lower costs or does that feature help me move faster? Right, but if you can tell a great story, it actually sets you apart. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I, it, something you were saying there too, BJ, it's that kind of that old model where, okay, you want something really cheap and really fast. Well, there's sometimes a sacrifice in quality, right? right. Uh, so if you're not offering that value, right, you know, vis-a-vis -vis quality, right, exactly. value, you, you lose something there. That's right. And and in a commodity industry, quality is relatively a constant yeah right unless the quality or quality of the product is kind of a constant unless what you're talking about is something more emotional right mm -hmm. are you are you delivering on an emotional need are you providing confidence are you giving uh support expertise these soft skills deliver value more so than the traditional ways of quality, which is, is it a better service? Is it a better product? In a, yeah. in a mature industry, all the providers have roughly the same amount of quality. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and also Amazon, it's not free, right? It's still paying, you're still paying about a hundred and something dollars a year for the service. But anyway, BJ, uh, let's talk, you know, let's talk about, um, you know, there's a lot of listeners out there who are in e-commerce, right? Uh, what's an ideal customer? for you? Yeah, so it's a great question. So uh, we work predominantly with uh, direct-to-consumer DTC brands or otherwise known as digitally native vertical brands. And the reason uh, we kind of focus in that area is because if, um, if you're a, a mid-market brand, what you're trying to do is to figure out what your brand means. You're at a size where you're kind of, you don't have the novelty of, of a small startup and you're just kind of entering the market and you've got kind of a, a hockey stick growth curve. 
right? That's, that's very important to have initially, but at some point you reach a stage where acquiring the next customer, whether it's advertising on Facebook or Instagram or Google or wherever, it becomes really expensive, right? And you've got to figure out that next stage of growth without diluting your brand. You see so many of these companies come up. Um, there's companies like Dollar Shave Club and Allbird Shoes. And these are companies that come in through a single product category, shoes, razors, right? They come to the market and build their brand, their brand narrative on a single product category. They hit a certain point and they're like, well, there's only so many, so many people buying razors. What can we sell to achieve the next layer of growth inside of razors? Right. And then you start to diversify. Now, as soon as you start to diversify your product portfolio, your brand narrative changes. And the things that drove your business before don't drive your business still. And at that juncture, you're looking for a partner to work with to figure out, well, what are the trade-offs? Is, is option A going to cost more than option B? Do, is there a way that we can anticipate what, can, what our customers are going to think if we roll out option C? You're starting to try to make decisions about your product portfolio and where the value propositions are. And what, once you get really broad, right, uh, bigger than what the, the type of client we usually work with, although we work with, you know, the biggest marketplaces, some of the biggest retailers, we've got experience there. A lot of the customers we're adding these days is in this mid-market digitally native space, because at that large size, you're really only competing on convenience. If you're someone like an Amazon or a Walmart, it's, it's, can I get, it's how much product do I have? Like how many different types of things can I, if you search for, does it show up in the search results in my product list and how fat can I have it tomorrow? Can I have it in two days? You're, you're competing not on the product itself, the, the quality of the product, and the story behind the product or the brand, your brand is about convenience when you get really big. But when you're a mid-market brand, you still want your story to be about your product. And so all of these other things on convenience, it's there are a bunch of trade-offs. You're not just focused on convenience. You're trying to figure out, is this source of convenience worth the trade-off of cost and reducing the amount of money I can put into product? Right? Because it's all a margin trade-off. Um, and so that's why we, we focus on, on these mid-market brands because they're at this very interesting stage of growth where they've achieved this initial growth spurt, but then they have to make these decisions on trade-offs. And we come in with this balancing question of, do you, do you want to focus on convenience? Do you want to focus on brand narrative? Or what are the other options you have? It's not just all convenience or no convenience. There are different levers you can pull. And how can we explore those different levers with you? Uh, as a follow-up to what Winston asked, uh, what are the, some of the channels you're using to reach out to these digital native brands? And then the follow-up to that is uh, what are, what was, what does your marketing stack look like? Is there a particular software or automation tools that you prefer or others? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a great question. So ch channel wise. So here's the interesting thing about the e-commerce market. I mentioned mid-market brands, digitally native brands. If you look at the market uh, and we define that roughly as you know, anywhere from a million in annual online revenue all the way up to a, a quarter of a billion is roughly the mid-market. That sounds like a really big range, right? One million to $250 million. Um, but there's really only about 15,000 companies out there in the U.S. in that range. 
only about 15,000. And if you segment that further, you know, we do really well with companies that ship packages that are somewhat lighter weight, you know, somewhere between half a pound to about five, six pounds. Just because of the nature of our network, the type of automation we have in our warehouses, robotics, they handle those types of packages better, right? So then you're into a narrower band. So from 14,000 companies, the companies you focus on that are mainly dealing with packages of that size are generally your uh, apparel, footwear, like shoes, uh, cosmetics, beauty, toys, hobbies, those types of categories of retailers. So you've gone from 14,000, you actually shrink that down to maybe uh, somewhere between six and 8,000 companies. Six and 8,000 companies in the US that we can go after that is like the, the sweet spot of the market for us. That's not a lot, right? If you, if you hire enough salespeople, you can give them all sandwich boards and they can go walk in front of offices and probably get the same amount of marketing conversion rate that you would by spending gobs of money on Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn, right? So there's, there is this aspect of, you know, if we're in B2B, B2B marketing, B2B sales, even though we're selling a, a B2B C uh, product or service, we can reach these six to 8,000 companies through direct selling or we can go with very targeted digital. But the, for six to 8,000 companies, it really doesn't make sense to do out of home. It doesn't make sense to do print. It doesn't, unless it's a very targeted print run. It doesn't make sense to do direct mail, especially in the pandemic, you can't get people's home addresses through B2B, right? It doesn't make sense to do anything but something highly targeted because there aren't enough companies that we're going after, right? And so, from it's a combination of direct selling through our sales force and targeted uh, account-based strategies. Yeah, AJ, you asked about sort of the stack. What's interesting here is look, there, there is no, I would say there's no platform out there that is perfectly suited for this dynamic I just talked about, right? And, and, and what I mean by that is there's plenty of ABM platforms, right? ABM is, is a wildly popular domain. But when we're looking at, what we want to say to those six to 8,000 companies, e-commerce becomes really, really, really interesting because unlike any other industry, every e-commerce retailer is kind of an open book. You can go to their website, you can buy their product, you can experience what it's like to go through their logistics flow, see the, the, the order being pick, uh, shipped out, watch it, track it being delivered, have it delivered, open the box, experience the product yourself, and then you could return it. You can experience everything about their customer, customer journey yourself without a whole lot of money spent. If we're in apparel and footwear and accessories, we can go and shop all of our client sites, and we do. Now, how do you do that at scale through an ABM platform? Well, to do that, we've, we've had to, to invest in our own tools. We've built proprietary tools to go and benchmark customer experience, to go and benchmark consumer sentiment. We've built custom tools because there is this unique opportunity in e-commerce where you, you can go observe your clients, your, your customers, your prospects' pain points, your, their performance their customers' opinions. You can go observe those things today online and then report back. 
and use that as, as a means to deliver value, not just a sales message, but actual value analysis and insight. And so we've, we've been able to build proprietary tools. We have a whole platform of tools that we use for insights um, across the entire client journey to benchmark all of these things and then deliver those in a very personalized, highly segmented and targeted way. And there's no platform I would say out there. We, we use tools like uh, data warehousing uh, with, with Snowflake. We use you know, a lot of uh, front end tools, some codeless, um, no code tools to help, help us iterate here, but it's all built in-house. All of the actual um, value I would say is built in-house because we've got this unique opportunity in this market. We're highly targeted and we can go observe our customers. It's, a, it's just a, it's a, it was a once in a lifetime thing. Sounds like it's a collaboration between your direct sales team and custom tools. Is that a fair way to? It's, yeah, it's a collaboration between, you know, the, the, the sales team has to adopt the tools for sure. They have to be willing participants because they are the vehicle through which these, these value messages and, and insights are delivered, right? So they have to be, become experts in the tools themselves, right? They have to become experts in account-based selling using these tools. And then our engineering teams have to dedicate time. It's, it's really rare in a B2B organization to see engineering resources being leveraged to build marketing tools, marketing and sales tools. Really, usually your engineering teams are building products, but we don't sell the marketing tools. These are just value adds that we give all of our clients, insights and, and analytics right? These aren't things that we go and sell. And so we've, we've kind of taken an interesting turn and we've dedicated engineering resources to build out tools to help marketing and sales. And that I think is driving a lot of difference in the way our clients work with us, our client retention, our client satisfaction. More of a personal question. Uh, a lot of, I'm sure based on your title and where you work, you get a lot of LinkedIn messages and, uh, unsolicited emails. What are some things that you gets your attention that you respond to? And what are some messages that really drive you crazy? <laughs> well, let me start with the driving crazy because there's a lot. There's a lot. <laughs> right. Uh, the, the, you know, uh, hey, we share some contacts. I thought we should connect is the worst, the worst entree. <laughs> and there's like one contact like, yeah. that's it. Yeah. or none possibly or none possibly you know it's like put some effort behind uh and we were just talking about account based right put some effort behind why i should connect with you when you're prospecting right give me some of something of value to show that you've done your homework now, I've, I've received some emails that say look we've gone to your website we've noticed these things here's what we'd like to talk to you about that gets my attention, right? But the, hey, I thought we should connect. We're in the same industry, blah, 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 is not, not at all appealing, right? Um, it's, it's to some degree lazy. Um, the, the other thing I would say on LinkedIn that, that I think drives me up the wall is using LinkedIn as a platform for soapboxing, right? I mean, that's, that's what Facebook and, and to some degree Twitter are for. Like this is, you know, um, these are the values of a of a of a great um, of, of a of a great employee, right? And then and then using using LinkedIn as a platform to kind of uh, just shill your own product, 
right? But there's no in, in, intrinsic value there of what knowledge are you sharing? What, what market insight are you sharing? And, and if you're using LinkedIn to just say, hey, you should come talk to me about uh, improving your uh, ROI on blah, 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 right? That again is, is sort of a lazy approach because any social media um, sort of uh, dynamic is going to uh, accrue followers towards people who actually share value, share, share something of interest on these, um, on these platforms like LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter, you're gonna follow people who say something interesting. But if you're all you're out there doing is going, hey, you should come talk to me about our services, that doesn't actually impart any value on anyone. And, and so it feels like, I mean, it's, you know, uh, uh, um, if, if you guys have been to Vegas, you know, if you walk down the strip, there's those guys that stand uh, on the sides of the road, just like smacking pamphlets in your face. You know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It yep. feels like that. I'll be in Vegas in two weeks. <laughs> You're going, oh, yeah, you seem like a, a Vegas guy. <laughs> but, but, the, uh, but like, that's what it feels like. It feels like a carnival. Yeah. Um, when you're constantly just prospected to, and by the, by prospecting, I don't mean something intelligent. I mean smacking a pamphlet in your face. That's that's not actually appealing. That's distracting. That is the best way I've heard that described, VJ. That is, uh, yeah, it's you know, it's so annoying. And they're not passing. And those flyers usually aren't for like a buffet. No, it's uh, it's. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, in, in some ways, it's like a one ninety nine type. Yeah, yeah, right. It's uh, not a good stay. Don't take those pamphlets from people in Las Vegas. <laughs> you know, that's that's a great way to describe it. Uh, BJ, I want to get back just to you know, touch upon the e-commerce trends a little bit. You mentioned some where, like you said, ebbs and flows, maybe the summer. But what are some patterns in e-commerce that you've noticed over the last like year or so? And what do you think is here to stay? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great question. So what we've done, um, you know, one of the sources of insights and the platform we've built is, you know, a lot of companies in our industry do annual consumer research, right? They'll do a study once a year and then they'll, that'll kind of pump through their marketing editorial calendar all year, right? They'll just keep kind of atomizing that content. Um, when the pandemic hit, we decided that that, that approach was just not going to fly because things are changing so fast right now. And they have been for the past year. We, you know, one year ago we were, were didn't expect a pandemic to hit, and suddenly we were in lockdown and quarantine, and our behaviors changed. Halfway through the summer, people were kind of getting cabin fever, and and it, uh, behaviors changed again. Then it was the holidays, and people shifted their behaviors yet again. And here we are, you know, with vaccines roughly at about fifty percent of, uh, of of eligible. Uh, Americans receiving a vaccine, their behaviors are changing yet again. And so things are changing much too fast for us to be able to, 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 to get by by gauging customer sentiment or consumer sentiment once a year. So we've gone to a weekly poll. Every single week, we put out two, three, four questions into the market and ask a panel of uh, different panels of 2,000 to 3,000 consumers what they think about these topics. Uh, we call it box poll. And some of the insights we found are you know, pretty compelling. We started this during the pandemic and we're now into like three or 400 different questions we've asked in the field. Three or 400 just in the last few months. Whereas before we would ask like maybe 30 questions a year, right? Um, and, and so some of the, the, new, the new things that are on tap right now with e-commerce impact are um, this idea of dispersion, physical dispersion. So when, when the remote work 
um, practice hit the pandemic, right? That was at first viewed as a kind of a temporary thing, but when it wore on for a year, it, it opened people's eyes to going, do we really need to be back in the office? And if we need to be back in the office, we need to be back in the office all the time. I mean, some of these telecommuting tools are not so bad for certain lines of work. And it may, in many cases, the value of not having a commute outweighs the need to pay a tremendous amount for office space as a company owner, right? As a company operator, office space is expensive. And if, if, you're, if you're seeing in many cases with information workers or productivity gain from remote work, you're thinking to yourself, do I really need to pay for this office space? It's a bunch of overhead that I, I don't, may not need. I could bring the, the employees in on a quarterly basis and we could do kind of fly in intensive collaboration sessions on a periodic basis, but do we need everybody in the office every single day? Because that is incredibly expensive and a productivity sink in many cases. And so as remote work becomes, I don't want to champion remote work, it's not for everybody, but as remote work becomes the norm for a lot of remote workers or, or information workers, those workers, almost 40% uh, of, of US workers fall in this category of they can, they can work remotely and not much changes right? Um, think customer service, think accounting, think human resources. You don't need to be in the office every single day because it's not a highly collaborative type of line of work. But even programming, right? You don't have. So they start thinking, well, if I'm not commuting to the office, I could live anywhere, right? The reason I live here is because the commute's not so bad. But if the commute goes away, I could live anywhere. And so what we found is that more than 30% of Americans, as of just a, a month ago, still have moving on the table. They're still thinking about moving. And that's not even including the 25% of Americans who have already moved. Home, the home uh, buying market, historic high, interest rates at a historic low, the rental market in metro areas, historic lows, rental prices in middle America have gone sky, through, through the roof, right? Why is this? Because people are moving out of the big cities where they didn't, they had to be there for the uh, for the work to go to the office, and they're moving into secondary cities, secondary metros, they're moving into the suburbs. You, you see this article. There's an article from the Wall Street Journal and one from the New York Times just like a couple of weeks ago. We're looking at postal service change of address data, and people are moving into the suburbs, out of New York, out of San Francisco, out of LA, in droves. What does this mean for e-commerce? Well, it means that your store, your local store is not as close. And it means you probably have a porch that, that deliveries can be left on instead of a mail room or a stoop on an apartment or in front of a brownstone where a package can get stolen. You actually have more convenience with home delivery than you did ever before because you're not living in an urban environment. In an urban environment, it's much more difficult to have residential delivery. Now, the problem is for, for companies doing delivery and e-commerce companies selling those consumers, shipping becomes more expensive because you have to drive further away from your warehouse to reach those consumers. So the, the free shipping offer that you have today, it costs one thing today, guarantee you six months, 12 months from now, it's going to be more expensive because more of your consumers are going to be further away living further away from warehouses, which means it's going to cost more to deliver to them. And so the cost of free shipping is going to fundamentally increase. Not just that, but it's going to change you know, this whole dispersion. People moving changes electoral politics. It changes school systems. It changes uh, traffic patterns. It changes um, 
what types of products people buy. There's more home goods purchases now because people are moving into larger spaces that need to be furnished. The types of products being purchased are fundamentally changing. They're changing faster than incomes, which means that there is a trade-off. You're not buying as many clothes, you're buying more home goods because you've got to furnish your house, but you're not leaving that house so you don't have to get dressed, right? So you can stay in sweats, but you want to have a nice couch. Right? Those sorts of things are happening at an accelerated pace. And for e-commerce companies, they've got to stay ahead of that. Right, The higher shipping costs, the change in the type of products being purchased, what convenience means before was I could go pick it up at the, uh, at, at the, at the, at the local parcel locker down the corner uh, if, because I don't want the package left on my, my stoop right, or in the mail room where it gets stolen. Well, if that parcel locker is now 20 minutes away because I moved to the suburbs, that's no longer a convenient option. So it's fundamentally changing what e-commerce logistics has to do. That would be the biggest, and that is driving everything from yeah. returns to what does packaging look like? How much waste is there in packaging? Because you now see it piling up instead of going to a dumpster behind the building, you now see the packaging waste piling up at your driveway. It's a fundamental shift in the way consumers view e-commerce and retail overall. Yeah, no, I, I love that take on that, Vijay. And it, it echoes some of the take that uh, some of our previous guests who are in the D2C e-commerce business like Lovesack and Shinesty, uh, who've been on, they've kind of mimicked what, what you said there. So I love that perspective. And I know as a native New Yorker in New York City, People are moving out in droves and our costs are going down as far as rents and, and uh, if you want to buy in New York City, but you want to go out on the outskirts, there are properties selling for $100,000 more. Yep, I, uh, it, it is that time. Uh, last question, Vijay, tell me more about yourself. How, uh, you know, how do you spend your, your free time? Maybe playing the guitar there. I'm sure it's mostly with family, but uh, some of your interests before we wrap up. Here. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's, it's mostly about kids these days. I got, I got kids who are, getting ready to be teenagers so there's, wow. there's yeah. only so much time you have left with them um and so it's, it's mostly about the kids i mean there's a little bit of guitar but you know uh, kids come first um i think that, you know the, the the main thing i i enjoy doing is building right uh, whether it's building stuff for you know building projects around the house but building solutions problem solving and, and so like I, I like doing that both personal life and work and so some of this stuff we we, we built around insights platforms and, and, uh, and research and, 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 and um, the types of consultative help expertise that we're trying to deliver to clients. That's, I think, an outcropping of, of a desire to build. And I think, you know, consumers overall are spending more time at home. They spend more time with families, but they want to build at home as well. I can build, build a home that, that they can spend more time in. And that's, that's exactly what I'm doing. I like that. I like that. Vijay, this has been a pleasure. Uh, you know, we, we loved having you on the marketing stir. We hope you enjoyed yourself. Absolutely. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, that is Vijay Ramachandran. He is the vice president, marketing strategy and planning at Pitney Bowes. I'm Vincent Petrofessa. That's AJ Gupta. This has been another episode of the marketing stir. Thank you so much for listening and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Marketing Stir podcast by Starista. Please like, rate, and subscribe. If you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, email us at themarketingstir at starista.com. And thanks for listening. <laughs>